Well, good evening. Yesterday, in this same facility, we had a homecoming service for Fred Klopp. And uh, we, we played that song that Gordon just played for us right there. And there were quite a few weepy eyes on that one. Uh, that's such a good song, and it speaks so well to us as we contemplate um, our, uh, our loved one's demise. It's good to know that, that you can go to heaven knowing that it is well with your soul. So, uh, good evening. Glad you're here. Uh, tonight we have, um, as we said, Dr. Lobeck, he's going to be speaking on aseity, which is another word of saying the self-existence of God. And um, you're going to learn a seminary word here tonight, and uh, that, that'll be, it'll be a, a good time of uh, teaching. We'll, hopefully we'll have a good time of singing. Uh, we'll turn it over to Gordon after the invocation, and he can take us into the sermon time. Uh, but um, do you want to say any, make an announcement about anything about um, either the newcomer? And next week, we're going to uh, begin our time together here. Um, actually, it is go we're going to have a little prequel going on here because we're going to start out next week um, with uh, choir practice. And the choir is going to have a rehearsal next Sunday night at 5, did you say? 5.15. 5.15. The choir is going to have a rehearsal. You're invited to come and watch how Gordon beats us and... <laughs> Puts, otherwise submission. puts a whooping on us, yeah. and uh, and then join in because we're gonna we'll we'll join the choir and learn a song too that uh, Gordon will have for us. So um, we'll look forward to that next week. You can come anytime between five fifteen and so we well, can come at four o'clock, but the door will be locked. But if you want to come at five fifteen, you can come to our choir rehearsal here. You can come five thirty or six or you know whenever yeah, you want. Anytime, drop in. Yeah, drop it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Unless you're in the choir. No, and no, we expect no choir you here at 515. Good. All right. With that, then let's take a few moments now to prepare our hearts for worship. Good evening. 
This is the call to worship. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. first hymn they're on the sheets that you have before you our first hymn all hail the power of jesus name stand
now let's talk with God. Oh God, you are wisdom, truth, glory, and the eternal true God and our Lord. You are our hope, and we come now to worship and glorify you who created us in your image. Lord, we, di we direct now our hearts, our minds, and our thoughts to you. Hear now, O oh Lord, the adoration of your people. We praise you, Lord. We extol you, Lord, for great is your steadfast love and your faithfulness to us endures forever. Teach us, Lord, how to more and more love your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The first song that we sang this evening was song of majesty for our God, and uh, sung in a congregation like this, with people giving honor and glory and praises to their king. This is a more simple love song that we all as individuals sing, even though we're in a group, we individually sing our love song to Jesus. His name is wonderful, you know it. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord, He is a mighty Master of everything. Yeah. 
It's a scripture text I'd like for us to uh, take note of here as we talk about tonight the aseity or the self-existence of God. And uh, I, I guess I'm going to learn tonight but whether or not this is a preeminent proof text for such. But it comes from Exodus chapter 3. This is where God takes a name for himself uh, to relate to his people on a, on a personal level. And so we have um, the children of Israel in Egypt at this point, and uh, the, the burden of slavery has become quite intense on them. And now uh, Moses, who is at this point a shepherd, uh, and we read this story that Moses um, communicates to us. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Then he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray together. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your self-revelation. In fact, God, we would know not enough. 
without your scriptures. And now we, we are so grateful that you have given them to us and that the saints of old have many gone to their graves to protect and preserve this great blessing of the scriptures to us. God, we pray tonight that you would prepare our hearts to, to hear uh, of the immensity uh, as, as, we, as we prepare to ponder on the things having to do with you. Uh, God, through your inscrutability, nevertheless, uh, we scrutinize and we, we look closely to see who you are and pray that tonight we might uh, move that needle just a little bit further in our understanding of who you are, knowing, God, that we'll never be able to completely comprehend who you are, not in this life, not in the life to come, because you are the creator. And so, God, we pray that tonight you would bless us, that you would encourage us, that you would uh, help us uh, by giving us some nuggets that we can treasure in our hearts and ponder as we contemplate the living God. Hear us, O God, we make our prayer in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Pete, you know Pete Leelbach? I'll let him self-introduce. Watch that cord. What a privilege to be with you. Thanks for the great music. It was really a joy to hear the uh, musical talent of the pastoral staff this morning. Wasn't that great? I, I can see a traveling duet in the making right here, you know, uh, the, the Bay Presbyterian Brothers or something. Like, we'll have to see how it goes. Uh, you may not know this, but uh, Pastor John loves music so much that he's recruited an organ uh, from Covenant Presbyterian. They, their organ was removed, and they were going to put it into the market, and our good friend John said, I bet Westminster would love to have that organ about that. So tomorrow I'm going to be picking it up with some others, and I'm going to be driving across country right to Westminster, praying that the Lord will build us our new chapel so I can put that organ in it. <laughs> so I'm looking for a new title. You've all heard about an organ donor. <laughs> so, so Pastor John is an organ donor of a very unusual variety. I just want you to know that. So thank you, Brother John. And Patrick, it's good to be with you tonight. Now, I'm coming into the midst of a fabulous series that's already been launched, and I get to do a few of the Sunday evenings. Uh, Pastor John is helping out, and uh, your new teacher, Greg Poland, is going to be helping out. And so I was given the privilege of doing three in a row, starting tonight, the next two weeks, uh, to talk about the aseity of God, and then the eternality of God, and the God who provides. Now, I want to be sensitive to time. Uh, what, Patrick, what time do we want to conclude tonight? Uh, I'm okay. Well, all right. I got a lot of energy tonight. I'm in Florida. Watch out. All right. So, at any rate, you can see the title here, Aseity, and it's the self-existence of God. So that word, we would like, at least at the very least, you learn it. It's a theological word. It's not a normal parlance word, but people who are serious about learning the scriptures and learning the doctrines that the Bible teaches should have this word in their arsenal, even if it's not a vocabulary word you'll use. It's something you should meditate and think on because one of the great duties we all have is to Lord, the Lord our God is to be loved by us with all our hearts, souls, mind, and strength. 
So we ought to love God for who he is. This is one of his properties. Now, as I present this tonight, it will be something of a lecture rather than a sermon, but I'll try to have some practical application and teaching that hopefully will be useful not only for your mind, but also for your heart and your life. So let's begin by looking, first of all, at what I'm going to try to cover uh, in our time together this evening. Uh, Theology, let's begin with that word. The word theology is a synonym for Christian doctrine. It really means words that God has spoken, words we speak about God, and it is very broad in its use. And so theological training makes a distinction between theology, which is the full doctrine that we teach, from theology proper, which is specifically what we say about God himself. Because theos means God, and logos means the study of or words about. So theology proper is what we are dealing with, the doctrine of God. Who is God? What do we say about him? And of course, one of the questions that immediately arise is when we talk about this, does God exist? Christians say, of course. But we know that many people would reject our claim that God exists. And so one of the questions that arises in this discussion is what about the proofs for God's existence? Now, that would be a whole course. It could be a whole lecture. And all I can do is take a passing hello. It's kind of like driving by Mount Everest and saying, you see that peak? You ought to think more about it. But we're going on this highway. Keep on going, okay? Why does God exist if God exists? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why is God here? And then we have another phrase that we're going to talk about, which are the incommunicable attributes of God. Qualities that God possesses that he doesn't share with anyone else because they're his. Now, our friends in medical training here and our own experience know that COVID is a communicable disease. You can give it to someone else. You can get it from somebody else. Well, that's something that you can share with another. Incommunicable means nobody can have it unless you have it already. The word aseity is an incommunicable attribute. God doesn't share that with anybody. You have it if you're God. If you're not God, you don't have it. It's a property of deity. And so is this doctrine we're talking about biblical? Is there biblical teaching that supports the concept? Uh, So the philosophical considerations are going to be oblique, but they do come up as we talk about this idea. But most importantly, are there any practical applications of the idea? So these are some of the things I hope to begin to introduce you to in our study tonight. So very quickly, does God exist? This whole question has been answered in various ways, and we could do, again, a massive study, but we know an atheist, that first letter A is a negation. It's called an alpha privative. It's a denial of what follows. Materialists, Marxists, humanists say, no, there is no God. The agnostic, the word gnosis means knowledge, A, and again means not. These are those who don't claim to know whether there's a God or not. They just say, I don't know. Some are strong agnostics and say, nor do you. But most are soft agnostics and say, well, maybe you know, but I don't. So an agnostic means, I don't know if God exists. I just don't have a clear clarity on that. A deist is someone who says we need something to start the universe, so there was a big banger behind the big bang, and therefore there was a first God, but he's an absentee being 
unconnected, doesn't hear our prayers, the absentee landlord, the blind clockmaker, we have different phrases. There's the pantheist that says that everything is God, so you meet God every day and you are God. You're part of God. Everything is God. There's even a more uh, interesting play on this that's developed. It's called panentheism. It means that everything is God, but God is not the material world. He's bigger than it, but it's part of him. So you can see that's another approach. The animist, or we might say the polytheist, is the the native uh, religions of the world. In our discussion, we're operating with the question, does God exist by saying, yes, he does. And as theists, we say that God is personal. He is a knowable person in the universe who has unveiled himself. He is there and he is not silent was one of the ways that Francis Schaeffer spoke about this many years ago in one of his books, the God who is there, the God who is not silent. That's theism. So tonight I'm operating as a theist. Now, the proofs for God's existence, this chart right here, I could spend many, many hours on. I just want you to know that this exists and we will not pursue it because we don't have time. But philosophy engages this question. Is there a God? Are there arguments that support it? Uh, We can go back to antiquity with Plato, who said, well, there's eternal forms, and there's the being of God, whoever he is, has to exist underneath those. There's Aristotle, who said you cannot have an infinite series of causes, or there would be nothing, because you'd still be trying to get back to something that started something. So there must be a beginning causation. He called it the unmoved mover, the beginning That unmoved mover is unknowable, unrelated to us, but he exists. St. Thomas, the Catholic theologian, built on many of Aristotle's ideas. Now, the point that I want you to see here is while there are several arguments that can be used, you can see that on the screen, arguments for God's existence philosophically, the Bible itself makes no direct argument for the existence of God. It just begins by saying, In the beginning, God created. It declares the truth that God is and that God has spoken to us in his word. And so as you look at that second column on the right toward the bottom, uh, this is where you might want to learn the word presupposition or sometimes called a principium or principia, the beginning principles in our thinking. Every system, even philosophers have them. The Christian presupposition following the Bible is that God exists and he has revealed himself. That is the beginning point. Much could be said here, but let's continue on. We might ask the question, why does God exist if we say that he does? And one of the questions it answers is, why is there something rather than nothing? Have you ever asked that question? Why why is there a universe? Why is it just nothing? All the, all the things that we see. Do you realize that the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which is extraordinarily great, it's something like 200 to the 10th to the 22nd power. It's billions of trillions of stars. And now our scholars of the uh, heavens tell us that there is a galaxy for every star that's in our own galaxy. That's the knowable universe, how vast it is. We can't even conceive of a number of how great that is. Well, matter, is it eternal? Has it always been here? Or is God eternal? 
And again, the answer that I want to say is that when we ask why does God exist, why, why is he here? Because God cannot not exist. It's impossible for him not to be. The answer is why is there a God? Because it's impossible for him not to be. He is the ground of all being. He is more real than you and I, more real than the universe, more fully necessary than any other principle in the entire universe. The theist says that God is the ground of his own being. He is eternal and the creator of the material universe. Matter is not eternal. It would not exist without him. God is the ultimate reality behind all things, and the reason he exists is because he cannot not exist. He is existence in its transcendent sense. So let's look at the word aseity. The word aseity is composed of three parts. Ah, in this case, means from, se, himself. And then the suffix, I-T-Y, means having the property of something. Okay, so we use that uh, ending many times, I-T-Y, to ending a word. It says this thing has. So it's the property that God has of being from himself. He exists in his own being. God has the property of existing from himself. So why does God exist? Because God cannot not exist. The non-existence of God is an impossibility. It is not possible for God not to exist because by his very nature, he is eternal. This is the perspective the Bible brings to us as theists. God is, he is the only true being and everything else is derivative from him. And so one of our founding professors at Westminster by the name of Cornelius Van Til, who I'll mention a little bit later, used to begin every lecture with a big circle on the chalkboard and a small circle on the chalkboard connected by two lines. And he would say, you can know nothing accurately unless you understand the difference between the creator and the creature. If you don't get that right, you're going to be wrong about everything else that you ever talk about. Now, if the students were starting to fall asleep when he said that, he'd take the chalk and throw that. So I don't have any chalk. I might throw my computer if I see someone nodding off. So stay away. Now, God is the great beginning of everything else that is derived from him. God exists from himself, and we exist from God. The universe exists from God. He is the transcendent beginning, the principle of being. Now, John Frame is a wonderful uh, Reformed theologian who's taught at Westminster, Philadelphia, Westminster, California. He's taught at RTS in Orlando, written many, many books. He did recently a lovely online article on a seity. You might want to take a look at it for the Gospel Coalition. So if you want to see what he said. But he puts this at the beginning of his, of his article. God's aseity means that he is sufficient to himself, independent of anything outside himself. It means that he not only has existence of being from himself, he needs nothing outside of himself. He's fully self-contained. There's no need that God has. There's nothing that you have that God needs. In fact, everything you have, God has given it to you. So the Bible teaches God's aseity by saying that he does not need anything beyond himself. Acts 17, we're going to look at that passage. So aseity marks the great difference between the creator and the creature. 
The creator is absolutely independent, self-sufficient, needs nothing for his being. He exists from himself. But we who are creatures, guess what? We need someone to help us to get started. Any of you remember your mother or father's birthday this year? You needed some help. Well, how did they get here? How did they get here? Well, how did Adam and Eve get here? They needed someone to get them started. We are not from ourselves. We are from others. We do not have this property. It is the distinction between the creator and the creature. This distinction, however, guards also the fact that God, who is utterly outside of time and space, is able to penetrate into the world because he's distinct, but he's not remote. He is able to penetrate the world. He's dependent upon himself alone, and he is able to engage the world to provide grace and provision for those who have need. Okay, so now we move from kind of some introductory words to asking ourselves, is this idea biblical? And so when we use the phrase biblical theology, it has two nuances. Number one, it means, is our talking about God from the Bible? Which hopefully we'd say, well, yes, we're biblically-minded Christians. We want to be teachers of what the Bible says. But biblical theology also has the idea of the historical unfolding of God's revelation. If God is, and if God has spoken, if God has opened the curtains of the heavens and said, here I am, this is who I am, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I want you to know, how has he done it in history? Biblical theology, in this sense, is how we can walk through history and learn about what God wants us to know. So the Bible, while it's complete, was not complete when it was first begun. It was revealed step by step. Another understanding was given as it developed until we received the full canon of Scripture. And so tonight, part of what we're going to do is to look at how this idea of God's existing from himself is presented in the history of God's revelation. It is, if you will, a biblical theology of God's from himselfness. How about that? That's what you're studying tonight. Now, I have an outline here that I won't go through because I'm going to break it down a piece by piece, but this is the overview of our next section here. By the way, this PowerPoint is yours to have for free and to share with everybody if you want it, okay? So I'm I, uh, not copywriting anything. We want it to go far and wide to anybody who wants it. So let's talk about where the Bible starts. Everybody knows the Bible starts in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Well, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. When the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus under Moses, it says in verse 11 of Exodus 20, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so what we see then is that the Bible begins with the idea that God is the Lord over everything. He is the one who created it, and therefore, by definition, this is his. He made it. He is in charge. He is the sovereign over it. This theme of the beginning then is picked up in the Gospels, as we already read this evening in John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, it's picking up the same words of Genesis 1 in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
This is an extraordinary statement of the beginning of an understanding of the Trinity. This word is with God and is God. You know, stop and let that sink in. I can say, I'm with Dr. Greg Poland tonight. Isn't that nice? But if I say to you, I am Greg Poland. John's going to start calling real quick. We need help here tonight. Shut down the recording. He is with and he is. How do you explain that? In these simple words, we have a mystery that cannot be described easily. This is the unique distinction of the persons and the full identity of our one God right at the beginning. And this one is with God and he is there with him so that Everything that was made was through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. If there's anything that's created, it was made through this one who's the word, who is with God and who is God. He's the Lord of creation. This is a property of a seity. It's beginning to say, who can possibly be in charge of everything? The one who is above everything that is the one who did not need this material world to exist. His creation is an expression of his being uncreated. Now, as we go further, there's an interesting other example of this. You remember the story of Melchizedek, this mysterious king of Salem. He'll show up uh, in the Psalm, and he'll show up in the book of Hebrews as well. But Melchizedek uh, blesses Abram in Genesis 14, 19. It says, and he, Melchizedek, Blessed him, that's Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now we see that this God who created everything by the word of his power, who's therefore the Lord because he had created, he owns everything. He's described as the one who possesses everything. In other words, when Melchizedek is bringing a blessing, he's bringing something that already belonged to God when he blesses Abram. And Abram then turns around and uses that same phrase when he talks to the king of Sodom. Uh, A few verses later, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high possessor of heaven and earth. A property of being from oneself means that not only are you the creator of the entire universe because it wouldn't exist without you because everything else is dependent on you, it means that you own it all. It's all your possession. In fact, it's interesting when the Lord comes to Abram in that great text of Genesis 17.1 when he says, I am El Shaddai. We heard that song and maybe sung it. The Hebrew word El Shaddai can be translated as the God who is almighty in the sense that he is able to provide everything that Abram would ever need. He needed a son and God would provide it for him. So all providing. Well, if he's the Lord, if he's the possessor, then the property of his aseity is that he can meet every single need. The reformational leader under uh, Zwingli in Zurich in the time of the beginning of our Reformed tradition, in his book on the covenant, looking at Genesis 17, says the word El Shaddai is really the idea of the cornucopia. Remember the story of the horn of plenty that just kept on having food that never ran out? Well, God is the one who has more than enough. He can never run out. Why? Because he made everything. He possesses everything. He's the Lord. He can continue to provide. Because he met your need yesterday doesn't mean he's run out of his ability to meet your need today. Isn't that amazing? I might have been able to help you yesterday if I said, I can't help today. I'm out. And God's not like that. 
This is a property of his being fully self-contained from himself. Creation, Abram. And then one of the most ancient books in the Bible is the book of Job. Job was probably about the time of uh, Abraham, going back to 2000 B.C. or thereabouts. It's uh, older than Moses uh, by many uh, calculators. And what I want you to see is that this idea of God's utter self-contained, fully providing, controlling of all things is part of the conversation going all the way back. It makes sense because they understood creation. We find just very quickly, Job 15.8, as Eliphaz speaks to Job, have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? In other words, God has the counsel that governs everything. Job 35.7, if you're righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? You're not righteous enough to give God anything that he needs. He doesn't receive anything from your hand because of that uh, quality of your wanting to be righteous. Job 36, verses 22 and following says, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who is prescribed for him his way? Or who can say you have done wrong? God doesn't need to be taught. There's nobody that can judge God. God cannot be found to be wrong because he's over everything. And finally, as the Lord himself speaks to Job in Job 41, 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God is not indebted to anyone. Not you, not me, not any being in the entire universe. We all are dependent upon him. This is a property of his being from himself, out of which everything else flows. He's utterly sovereign and above all dependent upon him. He's self-contained. Now we come to this wonderful passage that we read in Exodus chapter 3. The burning but unconsumed bush. You notice how that's emphasized in the story that we heard read tonight. The bush is burning. And Moses found his attention drawn to it. He looks at it and he studies and he realizes this bush that should have been consumed like that just keeps on burning. It just keeps burning. Now, what in the world is going on? And he discovers this divine presence that the Lord is speaking the very burning bush indicates that God is present in the world. But the fire that was burning did not need the bush for its energy to flame. Entirely self-contained within itself. God was in the bush, and the bush was burning, but he didn't need the burning bush. He was the power within himself. There we begin to see the beautiful picture of God being utterly self-contained, and he gives us his name. Moses says, well, who in the world are you? When I go back and I say, I've spoken to God, what is your name? He says, my name is I am that I am. I exist. I am always in the present tense. With God, there's no past or future. He transcends time. Time is a creation that exists within him. He is from himself so that time itself is a small little component that exists within God himself. And it's captured not only in the burning bush that this God doesn't need the bush to burn for the flame, but it's captured in the name that he gives at the same time. I exist because I exist. And I exist in the present moment. And that's my name. 
It's a name by which I'm to be remembered forever. Well, when you speak of God, you can call him the I am. The Hebrew name is Yahweh. In English, we've kind of misspoken. His name is Jehovah. Now, that's a whole lesson in its own right. I don't correct anybody for saying Jehovah, but you should know his, the, the, really the Hebrew is Yahweh. It means the I am. The I am. And so when you read your Bible, especially the ESV, you'll find that when the Lord is in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, the personal name for God by which he says, I wish to be known by this name in all generations. And so we should be conscious of that. That name is so sacred that the Jewish people would not say it. And that's why we mispronounce it because they had a little method of putting in different letters, and we didn't know that, and we ended up putting them all together in one word. It's the word Adonai and Yahweh, and out came Jehovah. Jehovah is a wonderful name, but God's name is the I Am, and it's Yahweh. Okay, so now as we see the unfolding of history, the self-containedness of God becomes more dramatic by the calling of Moses, the burning bush, the name of God. And of course, Psalm 90, you may remember, is the Psalm of Moses, the man of God. Psalm 90 was something that uh, Moses wrote, and it begins with these words, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We exist for just a little snap of the fingers in the time of God. God has no beginning, no end, everlasting. He has his life from himself. And so Moses is singing about a God who is always the I am, the God who is always existing from all eternity. Well, we find that this continues on with David. We come to David, the great psalm singer. In Psalm uh, 42, verses 1 and 2, he will say, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So another identification of God as having from himselfness is that everything that exists, he's the founder of it. He's outside of everything else. But some of you might have founded a business or founded uh, some organization. God is the founder of everything, David says. And here's the most dramatic statement in the Psalms. When Asaph, one of the psalmists, sings in Psalm 50, verses 10 and 12, he, said, he emphasizes, God has no need that man can meet. Listen how he puts it in Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God does not need anything that we have. Let that sink in. God's not dependent on us. We are dependent on him. If you have a God that desperately needs you, you don't understand who your God is. The reality is you have a God that's utterly distinct from you, but by grace he's pursued you as unworthy as you and I are. So as we look at this unfolding, we come probably to the premier expression of this idea of the aseity of God. You can see how it's developed in different stages through the Old Testament. 
there comes this great moment where the Apostle Paul now, the missionary to the Gentiles, is in Athens. He comes to the mountain called Mars Hill, Areopagus, and there is the place where the philosophers gathered. Uh, They were wanting to hear new ideas and debate them, and here Paul is going to present his understanding of who God is because he had noticed that they had an altar to an unknown God. They were so religious and so superstitious, they were afraid they'd overlooked a God who needed to be worshipped, so they set up an altar to one they didn't even know. That, that's that's kind of like saying I'm uh, crossing my fingers to make sure I got it covered, right? And Paul says, you don't even know who God you're... Let me tell you the God who I worship. This is a great moment in apologetics, a great moment in missiology, a great moment in evangelism, a great moment in Pauline theology as he's laying out what he believes. And what we find is this, as we see here in Acts 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, For in him we live and move and have our being, even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, stop and think about this. This is one of the most extraordinary theological statements ever made in history, and it's made in an evangelism context in a missions context. And if you look carefully at what he says, he essentially has summarized what I've just given to you from the Old Testament. He's taken point by point. He'd read his Old Testament, and he says, this is the God I'm finding, a God who has life from himself, who is a creator, who is the Lord, who's transcendent over everything. He's without need. He's the giver of life in all things the creator of man and nations, providential governor of the nations, times and boundaries. And yet, he's able to be known. He's near and imminent and certainly not made of material because he's the creator and he's not part of the creation. Well, if we want to summarize all this, here's a great takeaway phrase for you tonight. All right, Cornelius Van Til used a phrase that I've grown to love. It's called, the self-contained ontological triune God of the Bible. Now, someone ought to put that to music. Do you think you can do that? That has a ring to it. Okay. The self-contained. God needs nothing outside of himself. Everything he has need is within himself because of his aseity and his utter perfection. He is ontological, meaning he is pure being. A self-contained, existing being. 
who, which we didn't have time to study tonight, while he's one yet, he subsists in three persons. He's three in one, triune. And this is the God that is revealed in the Bible, the self-contained ontological triune God of Scripture. Why don't you take that as your homework assignment? Go home and tell your family about what you studied and explain each of those words to them because it captures what Paul was proclaiming on Mars Hill. That was a summary of the entire history of biblical revelation about the aseity of God. It's a wonderful thing. Now we keep going. So what are some applications? How are we doing for time? I'm trying to squeeze a five-hour lecture into 45 minutes here. So the application of the theology of aseity, does this really matter? We've tried to get the idea to see its biblical character how it engages in some ways with philosophy. Well, one of the things that it ought to do, if we understand it properly, it ought to give us hope. Hope is a really good thing. I think, Dr. Poland, you mentioned this morning that prayer is a wonderful gift, even to an unbeliever if they let you pray, because prayer and hope go together, right? Aseity means if there's a God who's the Lord of everything, the creator of everything, who has complete possession of everything, and he doesn't need anything from me, but he welcomes me to come to him and wants me to come to him. Wow, that's a lot of hope in that. He's not bargaining with me. He's saying, this is who I am and what I do for my people. Psalm 146, verses 5 and 6 puts it this way. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. This is the God who's the Lord, creator of everything, and how blessed is the one who comes to him because he has a place where there's hope that cannot be unfounded. God cannot not exist. God cannot ever require your need to be his need. He's able to give everything else. So one hope. A second thing is humility. I know we do this. We are sinners. We begin to bargain with God and say, Lord, I'll do all this for you if you will do this for me. And when things don't go right, we say, God, how could this have happened after all I've done for you? Ever felt that way? You start bargaining with God, start complaining with God. What you're doing is you're saying, God, you owe me something. And by doing that, you've just denied who the God of the Bible is. God owes us nothing. He's given us everything that we have. In his grace, he provides it. And therefore, as we serve him, one of the requirements that flows from understanding the greatness of the God of the Bible, this God who exists from himself, is that we will be humble before him with the spirit of Luke 17.10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. We don't give God anything that he, he needs. God owes us absolutely nothing because he's given us everything that we've had and we don't deserve any of it. And so our response should be, Lord, whatever your purpose is for me, let me rejoice to be that for you. I worship you. 
That's the attitude we take when things don't go so easily, when difficulty comes. Lord, you've given me everything I have. And if you're only going to give me two more months of life, may they count for you because you gave me everything I have. The Lord gives you a heavy burden to bear and you're going weary. You say, it's not fair. How come I have to bear this? It's nice to take a look at the cross every once in a while and say, boy, he really bore a burden. But you know, if the Lord has called us to take up our cross and follow Christ, that's what we should do. Say, Lord, here am I. Let me serve you. Your will be done, not mine. Humility. And yes, stewardship. Now, we got a stewardship drive coming. I won't hammer this too hard, Pastor. But okay, he said, hit the, hit the pulpit. Okay. Let, let me just read this uh, section from Luke chapter 12 and following at verse 35. Jesus is teaching, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. See, what, what it's saying is, is that you say, well, I've worked all day. I don't have to be busy anymore. I've done enough for God. I quit now. He can, he can be forgotten. No, we're supposed to be watching for the Lord every minute. Why? Because he's a Lord. He's our master. He possesses everything. He's given us everything we have. And he's coming back. He's going to call us to himself, or Christ is going to return, and I'm going to be on my game, ready for him no matter what, because I owe him everything. I am a steward. I don't retire from the kingdom of God. I don't sit back and say, I don't have to do anymore. So they said, Lord, I'm watching for what you want me to do. I owe you everything. Wow, that's really intense stewardship, isn't it? This is the passage that says, whatever change comes, if you decide to retire, then how do you keep serving the Lord in this new retirement? If you become ill and you can't do what you used to do, you say, well, Lord, how do I keep watching for you right now? Because I owe you everything. You're the master. You have everything from yourself, and I owe you everything. I want to give you myself fully in gratitude and hope and humility and a stewardship that understands that we want to please the one who has given us so much. You know, Peter got a little convicted by that. You see right in the middle, it says, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all of those folks out there? And of course, you're all saying, boy, that's what people need to hear that need to go to that stewardship thing. No, this is for you. Is your stewardship one where it says, I know it's been a long day. I know it's been a hard service. Yes, I've given a lot. But you owe everything to the Lord. You are his. Someone once asked a person, well, how do you define yourself? Who are you? And he meditated for a while as a Christian. He said, I guess the best answer I can give you is I'm not my own because I've been bought with a price. I belong to somebody else. That's the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. You're not your own. You belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to the God of the universe. Your stewardship is, I need to give him everything I have. You know, uh, great athletes often say, we left everything on the field. We brought nothing back. That's what stewardship means. I'm giving everything I've got to the last breath for my Lord because I owe him everything. I want him to be pleased. I want him to know I'm grateful. 
So that stewardship goes along with our hope and humility. It also shapes our character. You recognize Titus 1 as a great passage that describes what an elder, a leader ought to be in the church, and it governs high character for all Christians. One of the things that this understanding of God being the one that owns everything, who's given you everything you have, and everything belongs to be given back to him, it says this, for an overseer, an elder, a leader, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. We don't lead to get ahead. We lead to give back to the Lord who gave us everything we have. What a high calling. That's a character issue. When you understand properly the aseity of God, you realize, I'm not getting anything from me. I'm getting something that I want to serve the Lord my God with because he gave me everything. I'm just a creature. He's a creator. He has it all. It all belongs to him. And, of course, if we properly understand all that we've been saying tonight, this ought to inform very deeply the way we worship our God. Doxology, the praise and worship of our God. Job 41.11, again, it says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The Lord owns everything you have. He deserves everything we have. He is the one we are to worship. And probably the greatest expression of this is this Romans eleven thirty three to 36 passage where uh, Paul gives us, if you will, his uh, great peon of praise as he's finishing his great study of God's redemptive saving purpose all the way through the book of Romans. The sinners who are justified by faith, who are being sanctified by the Spirit, who are chosen by sovereign grace. When Paul finishes it up, he says, when we deal with this God who's self-contained, eternal, the Lord of everything, life from himself, and he's redeemed us, how do we respond? Well, it starts with the first word, oh. You know, we can exegete the word oh. Did you know that? This is a holy gasp of wonder and awe. Oh, oh God, you're great. Do you have any sense like that in your life? Or you don't even know what to say. It's just the word of, oh. You get a little feeling when you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Go, oh. You ever sense God like that? And you see something, that's the, the northern lights for the first time. That's how Paul starts. He said, I'm speechless when I realize this God who has life from himself that needs nothing from me, yet he's the God that knows me and loves me and engages with my life. And so he goes on and he says, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He said, I can't get to the bottom of it. It's deeper than the Mariana Trench. How unsearchable are his judgments. It's far more reaching than the farthest telescope can ever reach to the vast distance of all the galaxies strewn in the universe. How inscrutable. We can't put all the pieces together. It's just beyond us. The aseity of God brings us to worship, which is summarized in the phrase, the utter incomprehensibility of the God that we worship. We can't understand him. 
We can't take it all in. He's too glorious. In fact, if we try to do it now, he's actually quoting some of those verses from Job. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Three who's and there's nobody. God is a saity itself, self-existence, utterly sufficient. He needs nothing from us. And yet the depth of his riches, his unsearchable, inscrutable grace has been made known to us. Where's that holy gasp of wonder and say, Lord, how can it be that you'd love me? And then Paul tries to gather it this way. He says, if you want to think about what the universe really is, it's for from him and through him and to him are all things. So you think about those three prepositions. Everything has its origin from God. Why? Because he's the deity with the seity, the creator. Everything comes from him. And it's come to us through him. He is the means of everything we have. He's breathed into us the breath of life. Everything that was made was made through the word, the means of God so that we're here. And when everything is properly done, it all needs to come back to him, which is our praise. It's we're living our life so that we would invest in him. And so Paul says, if you understand what we're talking about, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Amen. So you see how glory and amen go together here? Well, let's finish up by just noticing how often that's the case. Because the pastor said, I can keep going, I'm going to keep going. Okay? Romans 16, 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You know what amen means? It's true. This is absolutely the truth. Amen doesn't mean the prayer is over. I'm sorry, you got that wrong. Amen means this is true. Okay? Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4.20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.17. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 4.11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Revelation 1.6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then finally, Revelation 5.13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the last words of the book of Revelation are, Amen, Lord Jesus Christ, come quickly. Is that... Can you say the amen? Are you able to say, that's what I'm all about? 
I exist to glorify the God who exists for himself, who needs nothing from me, but has given me everything that I have because everything is from him and through him. And I want to make sure it goes back to him, to whom it belongs. That's why I exist. I am not my own. So the Lord is now calling us then to understand him more fully. We're understanding this God exists from himself, that he has a seity as a property. That means that he is in charge of everything and we derive everything from he's the creator, we're the creature. And that leads us then to the next logical question, which is the eternality of God. What does it mean to say that God has no beginning and no ending? In the article that John Frame wrote, he puts it this way. God's eternality is his aseity with respect to time and therefore his lordship over time. Because he is the creator of time, he stands above it, but enters it freely to do his will. He transcends time in that one, he has no beginning or end. Two, he does not change. Three, he is equally conscious of past, present, and future. And four, he is not limited by the passing of time and what he can accomplish. It's extraordinary that the time-space continuum doesn't trouble God at all. Light years are irrelevant to God. God moves faster than the speed of thought. God is the source of everything that exists. We exist in him. So tonight, I hope that you'll take some practical thoughts home. Because God is from himself, you have a reason to have hope in any circumstance. Because God has life from himself, you're able to be able to serve as a steward and with humility, giving your life for him. And you have a purpose for your life. You're not floundering, what do I do? Whatever I do, whether I eat or drink, whatever I do, I do all for the glory of the God who gave me everything that I have. Okay, let's pray together. We'll open it up for a couple quick questions if anybody's interested. Lord, we pray that our worship would be captured in that great Pauline holy gasp of wonder. Oh, oh the depth of your great treasures, your riches of grace to us, the one who didn't need anything, but the one who meets every need and calls us to be one with himself. We worship and thank you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a couple quick questions and we'll wrap it up. Anybody? Yes. The question is, is God from himself in his triuneness? And the answer is yes. Yeah, well, he is... So when we use the phrase, the self-contained ontological triune God, we're saying all of that is who our God is. His three, he's one God who subsists in three persons, and he's always been this way. Why is he this way? Because that's who God is. Yeah. Okay. One last question. Anybody else? Okay. Pastor John, you're in charge. This is a subtle way of giving you the hook. I got it. <laughs> Watch your step. <laughs> Watch that cord there. Let's, uh, I think a very appropriate song that uh, in God's providence was chosen tonight. 
Be thou my vision. Let's stand together. It's on your sheets. eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor, wisdom, glory, and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. Drive safe. See you next week. <laughs>